Good afternoon, everybody. How you doing? That's what's up. For those of you who don't know, that's DJ Rafe on the turntables. Let's give him a round of applause. First off, on behalf of the Hip Hop Art and Life Club, I'd like to welcome you all to the inaugural 2006 Princeton Hip Hop Symposium. Thank you all for braving this weather to come out here. The response that I've received from the university community in regards to this event has been phenomenal. Thank you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Samson Mesquena, and I'm the vice president of the Hip Hop Art and Life Club. HHAL operates as a way to bring hip hop academia so that, uh, bring hip hop to academia so that it may be analyzed for its cultural and artistic impact. Dwight Drahan, who's the president of HAL, and I created this club with intention of helping Princetonians better understand the diversity of hip hop and hopefully increase tolerance for hip hop in our society. If anybody's interested in getting involved with the Hip Hop Art and Life Club in any capacity, you can email us at hiphop at princeton.edu. That's one word, hiphop at princeton.edu. Our contact information is also located on the guides that all of you received when you came in today. With that being said, it is my pleasure and honor to present you uh, my fellow classmate, Mike Ruda. He has been instrumental in putting this whole event together. Let's give him a round of applause. DJ Rafe, let's give it up for him one more time. I would like to welcome everybody to the 2006 Princeton Hip Hop Symposium. Contrary to popular memory, hip hop has found its way to Princeton before. More than seven years ago, a crowd of some 300 people attended a conference in this very room entitled Bridging Education and Entertainment, Empowering the Hip Hop Generation. Bridget White of the class of 2000 organized the day-long event that included a presentation explaining graffiti art, a viewing of the classic hip-hop film Wild Style, and a panel discussion that featured the artist Common, and then editor of the Source magazine and Princeton alumnus Selwyn Hines, who graduated in the class of 93. It was Hines who noted, a conference like this would not have been possible 10 years ago. We've come a long way. But where are we now? Thanks to the efforts of hip-hop scholars, artists, and activists like Bridget White, we no longer need explanations for hip-hop in academia or popular culture. Hip-hop, whether you like it or not, has cemented itself as one of the strongest voices of American youth today, and as such, warrants serious investigation. It should be noted that I initially conceived of this symposium last spring only after hearing that Jay-Z made the effort to attend one of Dr. West and Dr. Glaude's seminars. Unfortunately, I was not one of the lucky students uh, to attend that seminar. Nonetheless, his visit truly affected me. It was apparent that academia, as well as hip-hop, and its torchbearers are able to and desire to fully engage with one another. I thought that it was important for all Princeton students 
to look at hip-hop as an academic pursuit while still enjoying the music. Today proves that hip-hop wants to learn and wants to work with specialists in other fields of thought to increase its potential to incite positive social change. I would like to state that in closing, that it is my sincerest hope and that, and that of the Hip Hop Art and Life Group that the 2006 Princeton Hip Hop Symposium marks the beginning of an annual dialogue on these issues. Now I would like to introduce our moderator. Within the hip hop community here and abroad, Jeff Johnson is a force and a voice for a generation. An architect for social change, Johnson is one of today's most gifted leaders in both the political and entertainment arenas. You can now catch him on his own show, The, Jeff, the Cousin Jeff uh, Chronicles on BET. Please welcome Jeff Johnson. Good afternoon. It is an honor and a pleasure to be leading and guiding this discussion. I don't want to have too many introductory remarks. I want to go straight forward and introduce you to the panelists uh, that are going to be instrumental in making this conversation a great one. Um, the way that we're going to do this, and I'll break this down before they come out, is we're going to discuss a number of things. And hopefully this will not just be a panel discussion, but a real uh, dialogue between the panelists and yourselves. We want to engage the panelists as it relates to hip-hop and 9-11 and Katrina. And we also want to engage the panelists as it relates to hip-hop politics. Uh, and hip-hop politics from the standpoint of uh, giving political messages versus being involved in the political process, uh, as well as the separation between those that are a part of political hip-hop in name and those that are beginning to build hip-hop institutions. From that point, we'll begin to open the floor to those who are here that you would have the opportunity to engage the panelists if time permits. It is an honor and pleasure um, to begin to introduce this panel, many of whom who are friends. And the first who I'm going to bring to the stage is an activist and an organizer um, she has worked not only with Latinos, but also with the African-American community. She has addressed issues of hip-hop activism. She's addressed issues of feminism. And she has now moved on to another level of activism, which is being an activist and a mother. She is off the chain. She is intellectually gangster. And she is substantive and focused. Please give a round of applause to Sister Rosa Clemente. Like Rosa, our next panelist is a co-founder of the National Hip Hop Political Convention. He's a former executive director of The Source magazine and a visiting scholar at Kent State University. He has written books known as The Hip Hop Generation and Why White Kids Love Hip Hop. He loves to be an antagonist, and when you allow him, he will get on your last nerve. But he is a real scholar and focused defender of hip-hop and understands what it means to try to move the hip-hop movement to a place where it's substantive. Please give a round of applause to Bakari Kitwana. 
Many of you have seen him with most deaf. Some of you have seen him with high tech. You got the album's quality. You have the album, Beautiful Struggle. But many of you don't understand how the message in the music goes deeper than just fame and selling records. But it goes to empowering a generation and being an artist in the face of so many people that just want to be entertainers. Please give a round of applause for who I believe to be a prophet amongst men, Talib Kweli. Our next panelist has the longest bio of any of our panelists. And so I want to take a non-traditional route of introducing him. He's the smartest brother that's got hair bigger than Don King. He has written more books than some libraries hold. He has spoken out on more topics politically, socially, and in the faith community than many have thoughts in their head. He is one that has been dedicated to the movement for civil rights and social justice in a real way, and he's the coolest intellectual in the universe. Please give a round of applause to Princeton's own Dr. Cornell West. In November 2004, our next panelist was elected to her eighth term in Congress, Woo. representing the 35th District of California. South Central. <laughs> After 29 years of public service, she's still not satisfied with the status quo. After 29 years of public service, she's still willing to speak out when others are silent. After 29 years of service, she can still walk the streets of her district and everyone from elected officials to street cats know who she is. She is the Congresswoman from California. Please give a round of applause to Maxine Waters. Our last but certainly not least panelist is a PhD candidate in anthropology here at Princeton University. She, her focus is on discussing the relationship uh, between hip hop and French, or the French. <laughs> her focus is cultural consumption, cultural production, hip hop, and France. She is an Emmy Award-winning associate producer and one of your own. Please give a round of applause for Maria McMath. Without further ado, we are here not to just talk about 
hip-hop within a traditional sense. We're not here to talk about hip-hop within solely an academic sense. Hopefully, within our discourse, we'll have the opportunity to talk about how hip-hops and, and politics intersect, not just in a theoretical way, but in a practical way. How can we move beyond simply talking about the potential that hip-hop has to affect politics and begin to talk about practical solutions that those that are part of the hip-hop community would be able to leave this place not just ed educated and inspired, but given direction on how to use hip-hop to change the world. The two incidents occurrences, tragedies that have taken place in America that are most memorable, not just to those within these borders, but the world in the most recent history is 9-11 and Katrina. In the midst of 9-11, there were many political discussions whose fault was it, what happened, who knew that was supposed to know and who didn't know that was supposed to know. Uh, but the real question here, as we begin to deal with the notion of hip-hop, is how did hip-hop respond in the face of 9-11? How did it respond in New York, and how did it respond abroad? And then secondly, how did hip-hop respond socially and politically to the tragedy known as Katrina? Um, did we just have surface-level outreach or was there real substantive movement and connection and engagement on the ground that may not have been covered by the press, but actually happened? I want to begin uh, with Rosa, uh, because Rosa, I understand, I know all too well uh, that you are almost, you were detained in New Orleans following Katrina, trying to tell the story that other people uh, were not telling. Can you talk a little bit about how hip-hop was involved uh, post 9-11 and or Katrina, uh, and what hip-hop could have done better to respond to their own community. I mean, um, and cut me off, Jeff, just because I'm gonna merge both of them, but I was actually in very different places. At 9-1-1, I was actually um, with my organization, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, along with Brother Talib, Kwali, um, Boots from the Coup, M1, Black Thought, and we were doing our annual Black August Benefit concert. Talib has been the, the most consistent artist, and along with Dead Prez. But we were out there, five, oh gosh, five years ago, um, in South Africa for the UN Conference on World Racism. And when I attended the event, what it did for me as a Puerto Rican, and understanding how I, as an American citizen, am still second class, go internationally and see the hatred that people had for the not only American government, but particularly for the Zionists and, and the government in Israel. And the big issue for particularly African Americans at the UN Conference Against World Racism was the issue of reparations. And there was a coalition called the 400 Durban, where there were over 400 reparation activists that went. And I was one of the young people, so I sat in on a lot of reparations. I got to actually see Fidel Castro speaking. It, I mean, it was just an amazing 12 days, and we were able to do five Black August benefit concerts out there, three paid ones in uh, no, and three in um, Soweto and uh, Joe Johannesburg. Johannesburg. And so my experience with 911 is I was the last 
on the last international plane to land at JFK. I was in the air. I landed at 9-11 at 9.07 a.m. in the morning at JFK. Our plane saw the first plane hit the World Trade Center as we were descending. So my whole thing was like everything that people were talking about has now come to fruition. Because what you saw in South Africa was the people of the world coming together and saying, basta ya, enough. And at that moment, I didn't understand. But five years later, when we begin to see what's happening, particularly in Latin America, for a lot of people in international movements, 911 becomes the primer, and that conference, you know, was there. Um, Katrina, I went down 10 days after Katrina hit. I was like everyone else, watching it on CNN, and I'm in the media, and I'm like, Anderson Cooper cannot tell the story like I can tell the story, straight up. And I got real upset that all we were looking at, <laughs> except for Soledad O'Brien, was white media people. And that's not because I dislike white people. I'm just like, unless you're African-American, you do not know what that experience is like in New Orleans unless you're poor. You know, and I was like, I have to go down there and tell this story from the hip-hop perspective. And I had no money. I was unemployed. And I called on Dead Prez, Immortal Technique, and Saigon. And all of them gave me money. I got in a car. I was there within like two days along with two other people. We documented what we saw. We could not go to the 9th Fourth because when we got there, there were still bodies floating. We went to the convention center and we broke in and we saw dead bodies 12 days lying there. What nine one, uh, so what both of these experiences did for me was definitely open up my eyes. And in conclusion, the hip hop community after 911, that's when you begin to hear more about hip hop activism. So what the, what the UN Conference on World Racism did for a lot of us who were activists, especially like me, a, I consider myself a nationalist, a black Puerto Rican, what it did for me was prepare me, I think, to now deal with what our generation has to do with Katrina. Because understanding my history, Katrina now becomes the largest reconstruction mainly of African Americans since the Civil War. What does that mean, that we have 100,000 people? What does it mean that people still have not found their loved ones? What does it mean that somebody's body decomposed? What does it mean that poverty meant that you were not, you know, whatever, just die, do what you got to do? So the hip-hop community definitely stepped up during Hurricane Katrina. Nobody more than David Banner. And to this day, David Banner gets nowhere near as much respect as other people who don't look like him. Like, let me tell you, Bono, he wasn't down there. David Banner was trying to put Mississippi together because a lot of people tend to forget that the hurricane did not destroy New Orleans, the levee breach destroyed New Orleans. The hurricane hit Mississippi the hardest. So you got David Banner, Talib was there. I mean, most deaf, um, not only did he do Katrina Clap, he did it in front of the Video Music Awards and got arrested for doing it. And MTV's supposed to be representing hip hop. So that's why I know that 
brothers and sisters, and I mean African-American and Latinos because there were over 100,000 Latinos displaced and many of them rounded up because they didn't have their green cards or whatever and are sitting in the INS detention centers now awaiting deportation. We stepped up to the plate and we didn't get nearly as much credit as the so-called charity do-gooding type of people. Sorry it was so long. That's it. Thank you, Rosa. I want the panel, I want the panel as, I, as I begin to ask the next question to feel free to chime in when you want to. Uh, I will be the bell that tells you when to stop. <coughs> feel like you need a bell to tell you when to go. Uh, Bakari, this question is for you. Uh, as a follow-up to what Rosa was just talking about, there remain a laundry list of issues, um, social, political, and otherwise, uh, that are necessary in the Gulf. Uh, how do you know that hip-hop is being involved in the long-term process of supporting the humanitarian effort that's necessary to give people not only dignity back but hope back, um, but even more than that, the arduous political and economic piece that is really going to determine what the Gulf Coast looks like in the next decade. Where are you getting these questions from, man? <laughs> um, and she's telling me it's a good question. I think that the response from a lot of the artists, um, lyrically, is, is always important. And I think that we shouldn't minimize it. A lot of times people say, you know, well, it's just talk. I think the talk is important because the talk often inspires action. This is the importance of hip hop to begin with is it gives young people a voice. So I think that the talk starts to initiate the action. I think that what we saw in terms of Katrina and 9-11, um, in terms of hip-hop, I think is that we're starting to see a changing of the relationship between hip-hop artists and activists. So now there's more of a, a community that's talking and communicating and working together. I think before that, you know, you had the artists kind of in one place, the activists in another place, some people crossing those uh, boundaries, but not a lot. You go back into the 80s, people like Chuck D and KRS-One and, uh, and others, X-Clan, their conversation was, it was with, with, with activists of the 60s generation. It wasn't with our own generation. So I think that in this post-9-11 climate, what we're starting to see is more of a conversation between the, within the hip-hop generation amongst its activists and its artists and a more clearly uh, defining of what the politics are, um, specific to our generation. And I think that, to me, is, is the change. I think within the mainstream, uh, out of the mainstream process, what we're seeing is a continuation of divide and conquer around race, um, whether you're talking about the new racial profiling uh, or the old racial profiling that never stopped, um, or whether you're talking about, you know, just, you know, here we are, you know, shortly after Katrina, and it's pretty much off the national radar. Meanwhile, we're watching companies like Halliburton, uh, their shares increase like, uh, from $24 a share in, in 2003 to $76 a share in 2006. And so uh, I think something like $13 billion has gone into uh, Halliburton. And the question remains, where is the money that's really going to the actual victims of Katrina um, and, and, and elsewhere? So those are some of the, some of the issues uh, that I see crystallizing. I mean, I think that the dialogue is heightening between artists and activists. To me, I think that's 
an important thing. And I think a lot of times people are expecting this huge leap forward in terms of hip-hop politics and activism, but I think that we're really still in the early stages. I think that we're making great leaps and bounds. I mean, people like uh, Dr. Dre gave a million dollars to, uh, to, to uh, help victims, uh, divided uh, $50,000 between various families. Uh, people like Ludacris renting out apartment uh, buildings for families. Um, these things are still isolated, and I think one of the questions that we talked about, you and I, earlier today was where are the organizations mm -hmm. that can begin to bring this you know, into a greater focus within our generation, like the NAACP and the Urban League. I think that they're still emerging. And, and I want to come back to that, but Congresswoman Waters, I want to ask you the question, as you're beginning to see some of the maneuvering uh, around who's going to be involved in these processes in the Gulf in particular, where are these community-based organizations, these hip-hop activists in the discussion at all? Um, and how can the hip-hop community or the activist community begin to be more engaged in the discussions on the Hill um, so that we're not just reduced? Because I mean, don't get me wrong. I, don't, I think it's important to say that the grassroots effort is important and connecting human to human is important. But if we're disconnected from the discussion on the Hill, how do we help determine the policy that's ultimately going to affect what happens there? Well, let me uh, first start by saying uh, I'm very pleased that I was invited here today. Um, I am honored that young people care what I think. Um, <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. I am, um, I'm sitting here and I'm listening and I'm thinking a lot about uh, the potential power of uh, the hip-hop community. And I know, without a doubt, there is a lot of potential power there to have change, not the direction of certain policies as it relates to Katrina or 9-11, but the power to change the direction of this country. But I have to tell you, maybe in the words of young people, I don't feel you. I don't feel you yet. And let me tell you why I think, why not? Every year at the Congressional Black Caucus Week, I beg and scramble and plead to get hip-hop artists uh, to come and do a workshop that I developed called Young, Gifted, and Black. Developed it years ago when I first went to Congress because there was such a gap between these public policymakers and these young, new, creative, brilliant young people that I wanted to bring together. Some years we've been successful in bringing a few people there, but I was hoping that this would be a kind of bridge by which we could get uh, the hip-hop community more involved with public policy makers so that they could begin to influence the thinking of uh, older people, of mainstream people, of people who have the responsibility for developing public policy. Now let me say this. The artists have done a good job in creating, for example, their own foundations. Ludacris and others who have foundations, they're doing things. And I've been with them, giving out toys at Christmas time and, you know, different kinds of things. And you're right. Uh, the monies that were generated from various artists for Katrina uh, and other kinds of things, that's good. But somehow, you're right, we must uh, connect that organizationally and politically so that we can really create some change. I think we missed an important moment. Maybe it was in an, an artful description of what Kanye West felt about the president mm -hmm. 
but it was a time that should have been seized for some real discussion to move forward on what's wrong with the public policies of this administration, this president. We're sitting here enjoying the opportunity to have this discussion, but I don't see the hip-hop community out at the big political rallies. For example, all over the country, and in New York yesterday, in California, big rallies called the World Can't Wait. And these are rallies about the public policies of this country, and if we win in changing the direction of public policy, it will take care of how we respond to disasters and other kinds of things, where we redirect our resources. We're sitting here, and the policies that have developed around Iraq and Afghanistan are outrageous and ridiculous, and everybody should be absolutely out on the street protesting the fact that the President of the United States has not only lied to you about why he's there, over 3,000 soldiers, men and women, are dead for what? There were no weapons of mass destruction. You have over 20,000 young men and women seriously injured, lost their legs and their arms, eyes lost, brains shot out. Over in Walter Reed Hospital trying to figure out how they're going to be able uh, to simply see another day. In addition to that, we've spent $400 billion between Iraq and Afghanistan. It amounts to a couple of billion dollars a week. I stood on the floor of Congress begging, trying to get a billion dollars to help fight HIV and AIDS. All we need is another billion to fund all of the programs that are doing the outreach and the capacity building. But we're at a time when smart people, I mean very smart people are allowing this dumbass president of the United States Now let the media take that and make something out of it. I'm not going to be like Kanye and the rest. I'm not backing up. I said it. That's right. And I mean it. Well, Congresswoman, Congresswoman, if I can, if, if I can interject here. Yes. Can I, can I just... Well, well, real real on, quick, Rosa, let me, let, me, let me say this. And, and, and I want this to go to Dr. West. And Congresswoman, I want you to have the ability to respond. And then, Rosa, I'll come back to you. Because I hear you running down the list of issues that are wrong with this presidential administration. Um, but I also hear you talk about um, young people, artists, not you not feeling them as it relates to them coming and being a part of the session at Congressional Black Caucus. Now, I'm not going to call names because I don't think it's yes. productive. Yes. But there are uh, more than a few members of the Congressional Black Caucus that aren't as effective as you. <laughs> and so <coughs> there are members in our generation that are essentially saying, I don't feel y'all. And so how then do those who are elders, and, and again, Dr. West, I wanted to come to you, but because I'm responding to Congresswoman Waters, I dare not rob her of the opportunity to respond. Absolutely. How do we flip the script in saying to young people, here's how you need to engage in this process? Why is it that when the hip hop political convention takes place in Chicago, there are no elected officials there. Why is it that when grassroots organizations meet in local communities, you got to either have a chicken dinner or pay somebody that is an elected official or a business person to come and engage that community? 
How do we flip the script and the elders then say, I'm going to show you how to feel me so that you can so that I can feel you? Well, let me just say this. There is this strong belief, um, I think, in the political community that the hip hop community really does not want the involvement of the people from um, the old school days that somehow at the summits uh, we don't really have anything to say. Many of us who have been to the summits that Russell Simmons and others have put together uh, really feel as if we're almost intruding and that um, we are obliged uh, for a few words but that it is not what is wanted uh, at those summits so we have to correct that. As for uh, members of uh, the Congressional Black Caucus and members of Congress in general. They come in all shapes, sizes, thoughts, philosophies, etc. The power of the hip-hop community to put people in office and take people out is so awesome if it's ever realized that you don't have to beg anybody. Uh, you don't really have to convince anybody. What I would like to see in the hip-hop community and with young people is that you take on some action. I was just, I talked with some young people uh, a few months ago, looking at a lot of small cities and towns all over America where mayors are being elected with 7,000 votes and less. Uh, let me just give you an example. I asked them to pull up some numbers for me uh, to take a look at a couple of these small cities uh, to give you some idea. Patterson, New Jersey, 247,986 people registered, 18,000 people voted. Mayor Torres won with 7,544 votes. The hip-hop community ought to take the city council, the mayor's seat, and everybody and take them a city and start taking cities all over America by turning out votes that are not participating because they think people don't want them to participate, they haven't been educated, but the whole idea is you've got all of this power and the power of artists is so awesome in influencing young people that the way I think you really ought to start to get involved in political action is to target to target some towns and cities and some seats and take them. Everybody will look up. Everybody will pay attention. And that's the kind of power that can be exercised. I would not worry about whether or not there are elected officials who speak out or who are progressive uh, because nine times out of ten they got to where they were acting the way that they do and they're probably not going to change. But the thing to do is take them out of office. You can do that. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. West. <laughs> Is there a question, number? <laughs> I'd, I'd like you to follow up on the original question. Oh, on that original you. question. Yes, sir. Oh, you were talking about that non-feeling between the old and younger generation. I want to begin, though, just by saluting the students here at Princeton who had the vision and determination to bring in this high-quality panel together the hip-hop life and arts, Brother Michael, Brother Dwight, all of you all. This is a, this is a real source of, uh, of inspiration in that regard. Uh, I think that uh, for me, first and foremost, it's a matter of how do we engage in ways of trying to generate awakening. 
more than anything else, when you think of music, when you think of politics, what, what brings them together, uh, for me, at their best, is that they're forms of awakening, where people actually try to meet the challenge of becoming more courageous and becoming more compassionate, which is to say willing to take a risk, willing to say things that cut against the grain. And I, and, and I think we can criticize both generations. We know there's a lot of conformity, complacency, and cowardice in the older generation. There's a lot of conformity, complacency, and cowardice in the younger generation. It's not a matter of just pointing fingers in that regard. The question is, what are the conditions under which somehow we can become more nonconformist against the conventional politics, morality, and so forth? How to become more courageous? And uh, uh, what inspires me about being on this panel uh, and in some ways kind of representing the older generation at Princeton and the older generation of black folk and the older generation as a whole is that it allows me to try to become more courageous and compassionate even, even as I listen to the voices that are here. I just wanted to respond um, to the congresswoman um, in essence of, you know, trying to get artists and stuff. First for me, hip-hop is these five elements, right? So you got the b-boy and the b-girl. They don't, if you talk to B-girls and B-boys, don't call them breakers. You know, they're not breakers. You got the graffiti artist. You have the MC. You know, I think Talib is an MC. I think someone like Puffy is a rapper, a recorded artist who could perform. There's a difference in that. You got the DJ, and you got the fifth element, which is knowledge and culture given to us by the godfather hip-hop, Africa, Bambad, and the Zulu Nation. What does that mean? That oftentimes, I think, the older generation, and I've been working for years around things called intergenerational dialogues along with Bakari, and you know, I, I came up under wonderful professors, one in particular, Dr. Turner, James Turner at Cornell University, but I don't remember a moment in my life where I have not um, been mentored by an older person from John Henry Clark, Stokely Carmichael. Now, I had these experiences because in the time I was in college, in the early 90s, there was what we called the olden age of hip-hop. So you were not listening to Ludacris, Shake Your Money Maker. You were not listening to 50 Cent. Those type of artists didn't exist. Everything that you heard coming out of hip-hop was powerful. You were talking about the nation of gods and earths. You were talking about black men saying, we're taking power. Okay, that's very, you're talking about Rakim. KRS-One, you're talking about women who didn't have to marginalize themselves. Salt and Pepper, Queen Latifah, MC Light, Roxanne Chante. So in that essence, we have, I think a lot of us have been trying to have these intergenerational dialogues. Now I think the goal is who really represents hip hop and who doesn't. For me, Russell represents hip hop. He represents the misogynistic, sexist, capitalist, sweat-using, for his clothes, shopping, hip-hop. I'm not that hip-hop person. So you know what? Most people are not going to call for a Rosa Clemente. They're not going to call for a Monifa Bandelli. Sometimes they won't call for a Bakari. Sometimes cats will be like, yeah, Talib was good until he said that thing. You, that made him, you know what I'm saying? So... I, I, don't, I, I consider myself a very different hip-hop person. To me, 50 and all of them represent capitalism. Now, we all do. I'm not going to front and say we don't all use the dollar, and I'm not talking about socialism or communism. We can have that discussion later. 
and I'm down for that too. But what I'm saying is we need to become very clear. What side of hip-hop are you on? Are you going to be on the pimping side? And look, Ludacris and all of them have their foundations, but at the essence of most of their music is nasty, misogynistic lyrics against women. And the more these cats get older, the nastier they're becoming in their music towards women. And if you're degrading half of hip-hop, and if you're degrading the creators and the co-founder of that culture, the whole thing is shaky from the giddy-up. So what we have to do is we have to say, know our history first and foremost. A lot of us don't even know, but we want to rock a Black Panther shirt. We don't even know what the Panthers did. We want to talk about Malcolm, but really don't understand him. Malcolm was talking at one point about how you merge, the ba how you deal with the ballot or the bullet. So we have to have a clear understanding of who we are as black and brown people, what our political line is. Lastly, right, because I'm not going to get down with Alberto Gonzalez because he's Latino and I'm Latina. You're, you're a travesty to anything that remotely resembles Latino resistance. I don't care what your last name is. You're not repping me. And I think that's how we have to come. And I think for so Congressman Water, I hope that next year in September at the CBC, we could bring like those other kind of artists also like an Immortal Technique or Pat Poose or Saigon or Jean Grey. These amazing artists that are getting, as you know, no radio play because of what the FCC has been doing and the payola scandal going on in radio. Well, you know, and I think we're, we're, we're on the same track somewhat. Yeah. But... Here's what I'm talking about. Um, when I say I don't feel you in terms of helping to deal with this tremendous public policy that really determines, you know, where this country is going and how it's going to get there. The FCC is having meetings all around the country. They were in L.A. And uh, I was there taking them on about consolidation in the media with the L.A. Times, was owned by the Tribune Company. Uh, that owns uh, WGN, uh, I think, in Chicago, and 27 other 27 uh, TV stations, et cetera, et cetera. Now, wouldn't it have been wonderful if the hip hop community had been there uh, with me and others who are prepared to take on the FCC, and 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 not in the same fashion that these hearings take place. I mean, if you conform to the outline of um, the establishment on the way these hearings take place, those people who sit uh, at the front of the room to be heard are people who sit there because they're an elected official or because they're the head of this, what have you. I mean, the hip-hop community got to walk in the room, fill up the whole room, and say, I wasn't invited, but I'm here. I intend to speak. Y'all gonna let me speak? Uh, I wanna, and I got something to say. I mean, you got to change uh, the way things are, are handled and done, or uh, you're not going to have an influence. And so, all I'm saying is, when I walk precincts and knock on doors, the hip hop community is not there. How do I uh, say to the hip hop community, this is how you get voters to the polls? How do I say, this is how you do a brochure uh, in the political arena. Tell me how you do things in your world and how I should be trying to learn more about how I can connect my world with your world so that we can take over the world. I mean, that's really what I'm saying. Okay. Um, 
I just like to add from my own experience that the problem that I see with hip hop and politics just from my own generation is, is, a, is a total disconnect. Um, you know, we talk a lot about politics and we talk about how you can't, tr you can't trust the Republicans and the Democrats seem to be spineless and don't have no backbone and you can't really trust what they're saying. And so you like, okay, when an election comes up, the only elections that are really on television is really in the media is the presidential elections, the you know, governor elections, everything. I'm not really talking about school board elections or council people, people like you know, Congressman, Congresswoman Waters who you see walking around your neighborhoods. I'm talking about just people talking heads you see on TV. And um, you know, the things that they're saying, just from the amount of information that we have, don't make any sense and you don't trust what they're saying. And then it's like, I, I remember watching a Democratic um, uh, convention when they were trying to pick a candidate to run against George Bush. And they had John Edwards and John Kerry up there. And they were all trying to see who could sound more Republican, because that was the vibe of the country was real conservative. And this guy Kerry was like, well, I was a prosecutor, and I'm more like a Republican because I put people in jail. You know what I'm saying? And this guy, John Edwards, was like, well, I'm from the South. And, you know, Republicans, you know, they'll vote for me because I'm from the South. You know what I'm saying? So, and it was just like the only person who got up there and made any sense and said anything that I could personally as a young black person relate to, somebody in the hip-hop generation, was Al Sharpton. Now, I'm from New York City. Al Sharpton has a tremendous history in New York City. Not all good. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, not all good. You know what I'm saying? So it's like he'd be on TV looking crazy sometimes. He done said some wild. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't completely, I'm not like, okay, yeah, immediately. But he was the closest out of everybody. And when he said what he had to say, all those people in that hallway stood up and applauded and cheered because what he said was the closest to the truth and made the most sense. And then it hit me like a brick, like he is the least likely to be nominated. He's the one making the most sense, but he's the least likely to be nominated. And it's like when I look at politics and I see that, it's like I can't, no one can explain to me why I should vote for the lesser of two evils. I don't get it. No one can explain to me why I have to participate in something that's obviously flawed, obviously broken, obviously doesn't have my interests. And it's like, it's just too obvious for me. Um, also, when I look at, like, you know, people in the community, like, there's people, hip-hop generation people who I grew up with who are in politics, like Raz Baraka and Kevin Powell who are now just starting to do their thing. And it's like, I could support them and I could see them out there, but what I want to see them doing is like, the same way I know where, you know, Funkmaster Flex and Mr. C gonna be on the weekends, I want to know where Kevin Powell gonna be on the weekend. I want to I want to go on MySpace and see him hitting me up and try to be in my top eight. You know what I'm saying? I want to, I want to go on YouTube and see, you know, these people really participating because it is a disconnect. And there's ways these, these party promoters, these urban party promoters, promoters are working with one-eighth of what some of these politicians are working with. But I know what they're doing every weekend. You know what I'm saying? And they really, 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 really in this community. I couldn't tell you who represents my community for what? Maybe I need to pay more attention? I don't know, but I'm busy trying to let y'all know I got a record coming out. That's what I'm doing. So I don't know what these politicians are doing, you know, because I know, I know the work I got to go through. Like, I've been doing this, I've been doing this for like 10 years, and I've never had a gold album or a platinum album, you know what I'm saying? And every year, I get to be on TV, and I get to do these panels, and I get to, and people are still interested in what I have to say. I make myself relevant. I have to make myself relevant because the type of music I come with is not, it doesn't fit into the mix after lean with it and rock with it. It doesn't mix that well, you know what I'm saying? So I'm not mad that they playing that. Go ahead. And even with Rose, like, we, she know, like, me and her go back. We done did this, like, 18, 20 times together on a panel. You know what I'm saying? Like, and her job is an activist. I separate myself. I'm like, look, 
I'm an entertainer. I'm, I'm very clear about that. There are, a, there are activists like Deb Rez and Boots from the Cool who are activists, and they activists first. And they say, well, you know, the music, I use the music to get this message across. That's not what I say. So when, she, when Rosa makes a statement about, I think these dudes, I don't, you know, 50 represent capitalism, this and that. And that. Yeah, I agree, definitely, on a scholarly level, but I'm, that's not my approach. I would never say to them, I think you're a travesty. That's not my job. That's Rose's job. You know what I'm saying? My job. You know what I'm saying? My, my job. No, but I mean, you know, you need people. You need people in the community to do different things. You need people who are activists to point out this. And you need me as an entertainer. I'm again in a nightclub where they serving drinks and the music's loud. I'ma perform. And if 50 want to do a song with me, I'ma be like, yeah, I'm doing a song with you because I look at the similarities. We young black men from New York City who love doing hip hop music. I don't care what you say. Those things are way more similar than any differences that the media tries to create. And um. I just think that these people, all of us could be, you know, more connected in general, but I just think with politics, the thing is, is that I voted, and I voted for Bill Clinton, I voted for, um, you know, people in certain, like, local elections, people who I see in, in my bodega, but other than that, man, I, I haven't, I'm, I'm not voting. That's how I feel. Let me, let me, let one, me one, second, one, second, to, one second, one second, okay. one second, one second, Bukhari. I want to get to Maria, but I want to do a follow-up question, and then I know where you're going. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I want to ask, Carly, do you feel frustrated, because I know I feel frustrated, about there has never been a generation before this one that's looking for entertainers to lead as opposed to activists to lead? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you exa- you're exactly right. I mean, I think that... um. Artists by nature follow the trends of what people are going through. The, the community makes the artist responsible for his music. If the community dictates, right now the community says, you know what, it's about stacking papers, about being individual, I'm going to do me, you do you. You know what I'm saying? What you not, okay, you, you might could rap, you could freestyle, you could battle you on that conscious stuff, but are you making any money? What are you doing? You know, well, I can't even respect you. Look what you got on. I don't even know what label that is. You know, that's how people are coming at you, you know. And it's like, that's the context of the community. So you can't really hold an artist. I don't, an artist, I think, is responsible to be honest with their expression, to go inside themselves and pull out something honestly. If they honestly want to say booty, 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 rocking everywhere, then that's what they want to say. You know what I'm saying? And that's what the artist, then he's done, the artist has done his job. It's your job as a human being, as a person who interacts with other people to be a role model. That's, and if you, don't, if you don't have parents to show you that, if you haven't been in an environment to show you that, then again, God bless you for making art and, being, and, and, and saying, Decadent stuff. God bless you. At least you find in some way to express yourself and get it out there. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that the artists traditionally have followed. In the 60s, there was a context. There was a context for social upheaval and social change. And if James Brown didn't cut off his chemical perm and say, I'm black and I'm proud, the community would not have supported his record. And we don't have that context right now. Whereas if artists doesn't represent properly, the community, you know what I'm saying? The community has to change. For it. Marie, I'm going to come back to you, but Bakari, I, w- I want you to deal with this whole issue of voting. But I, I want you to, to first deal with why is it that this generation, and, and I don't just mean older folks, I mean younger folks too, continue to ask artists to be role models and leaders as if going platinum gives you the intellectual capacity to lead anybody. Uh, or winning an NBA uh, MVP means that you, your issues of your father not being in the house all of a sudden are gone and now I can help somebody else who hasn't. When artists and athletes, entertainers, especially in hip hop, come from the very same communities as the young people that we're asking them to lead, 
How does that make sense? And then how do we as activists begin to flip that so that there is more of a genuine partnership that I think that both Kwali and Rosa started to talk about? Um, how do we institutionalize that partnership? All right. Look at me like that. <laughs> I think first we got to just deal with some of the economics and, and, and a lot of the economic shift over the last 25 to 30 years. And I think clearly we're in this celebrity culture moment. We're in this consumerism moment where people are defined by that. And I think that people expect these celebrities to be leaders because I think that's what we've been programmed to do. I think that when you start to move out into a real activist and a political community, I don't think you still have that type of a, a relationship. But I want to kind of touch on some of the things, that, some of the questions you're raising, uh, Congressman Waters, because I think that they're pointing at something and some of the things that Talib is raising and Rosa in terms of it's a division between this hip-hop activist community and the quote-unquote political establishment. If you take someone like uh, uh, Congressman Fo uh, Harold Ford, for example, who is technically a member of the hip-hop generation, but if you look at the way he moves in terms of his politics and, you know, the community that he's moving in, you wouldn't think that he was a part of the hip-hop generation because he's within the political establishment. Talib, when you're talking about people not, you know, I mean, looking at these candidates, choosing the lesser two evils, I mean, that's very real. I think in many ways we are the descendants of the black nationalist uh, activist community in that people withdrew from the electoral process. And so I think that what we're seeing within this hip-hop generation and within this hip-hop political movement is an attempt to bring those two things, those two communities back together. How do we bring the activist community that, was, that withdrew from the process back together with the, the mainstream electoral politics community. And I think that's what we're seeing in hip-hop. And it doesn't always play out the same way in, 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 in every place. I mean, for example, if you're talking about, you know, bringing people into these meetings that you're having, um, I'm sure Davey D was there <laughs> in L.A., right? But aside from Davey D and, and, and other places, I think if you start to look at how the, the hip-hop community is organized, in terms of artists, in terms of local MCs, in terms of grassroots activism, some who don't believe in voting. The community of hip-hop is already organized. The, it is organized informally. I think the question becomes, how do established politicians tap into that community? That's one question. Another question, again, that's problematic is, in some cases I think that people don't want to tap into those communities. Going back to Russell Simmons, because I think that it's an important question. I mean, the, the 50 cents, I think those guys have a role to play in a hip-hop political movement. If 50 cents were here, you wouldn't be able to walk into this room right now. People would be in the middle of the aisles and everywhere else. That says something that we can't lose. Russell Simmons. If, if Russell Simmons and the Hip-Hop Summer Action Network, I've been doing hip-hop political organizing all over the country for much of the last 10 years. If you go to a hip-hop summit event, there are people there that you're not going to see at other hip-hop activist gatherings. They may be coming to hit Russell off with their demo, but they're there, and they're getting into the conversation, and I'm excited about the people that Russell is able to reach that, that we aren't reaching. So, I mean, I think that it offers, you know, something to, to still be considered. I think everybody has a role to play. We shouldn't discredit people, and even, I think, within the establishment 
of uh, electoral politics, we, there are young people there in the Congressional Black Caucus, like Lisa Fager, like Maya Rockymore, that are connected to this hip-hop community. I think that we just need to see we're at an early stage. We've got to do more work. A lot of times the political sophistication isn't there. We just got to do more work. Sometimes there's hating going on. But I think that, Jeff, I think you're right, and you keep coming back to this question. I think the national organizations, if they were able to come into existence, hip-hop political activist organizations at a national level, they might be able to facilitate some of these divides. Some of the work, like the Hip-Hop Caucus has been trying to do, and uh, Brother uh, Reverend uh, uh, Yearwood um, was out protesting the Iraq War. So, I mean, I think... And got arrested. So I think that we are involved on these different fronts, but without national organizations, it seems more disconnected than it is. Well, Maria, let, let me take this question to you, because I hear what Bakari is saying, and, and I, I've, I've been at a lot of those hip-hop summits. So we get people there, but what are we saying when we're there? Well, that's true. Um, it, it's great that you can get a panel of 25 artists, none of whom have voted, <laughs> and none of whom understand the political process, but it's a political empowerment summit. Right. Um, so that's problematic in itself, and I apologize for inserting my opinion as the moderator. But, Maria, how do we begin to take the hype that's connected to hip-hop vis-a-vis the hip-hop summits, vis-a-vis vote or die? I ran into a 12-year-old who said, I voted, and we still dying. Now what? Um... How do we begin, even on a local level, to institutionalize what we do as opposed to being so satisfied being grassroots that we're ineffective? Great question. Tall order. Um, I think the first thing to do is start to think about what it means, what you mean by local. What, what do we mean by local? Do we mean our block? Do we mean our city? Do we mean our state? Do we mean our country or do we mean our globe? Um, and I put, I phrase it that, that way because, you know, for 200 years, the rest of the world has been looking to the United States as an exemplar, as an exemplar of democracy, as an exemplar of capitalism, as an exemplar of, de- of development, um, from the American Revolution to the French Revolution, which are connected. Um, we have had three continents give birth to hip hop as a result of the Black Panther movement. Um, one is North America, United States, obviously, but let's not forget that Black Panthers were in exile and in training in Algeria, which was a French colony. So we're talking about France, we're talking about Europe, and we're talking about Africa. Um, and then here today, the, the conversation ta- started with Katrina. Um, <laughs> Activists in France looked to the United States, um, and you know, the thing about France too is that mainstream France, and that is French whites, um, think themselves more progressive, uh, less racist than uh, white folks in the United States. So they're watching the media coverage of Katrina, which is largely African American, and saying, how could they allow something like this to happen in America, supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave? Meanwhile, in France, uh, they will parrot the empty phrase, liberty, equality, and brotherhood, and then the next week have uh, riots and cars burning as a result of unhappy Algerians, as a result of unhappy Moroccans, Tunisians, uh, Ivorians, Senegalese, Cameroon, Togo, and other French colonies. Um, 
And so, and one of the ways that they've been able to cope with this is to break down this idea of what is local. If black people are suffering worldwide, if black people are suffering on the continent of Africa, if black people are suffering in France, if black people are suffering in New Orleans, it matters to all black people worldwide. It matters to all people worldwide because people are suffering. And that is unacceptable. We cannot have ambivalence about that. That kind of ism, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and other types of hate cannot stand. Um, and so to give an on-the-ground example of, an, of a French, uh, French rapper who has made his work relevant in terms of an activist sense and in terms of a, I need to get paid, I have children, I, this is my job, I need distribution. Uh, you have somebody like Matt Murdock, who is a Congolese immigrant to France, uh, who developed an organization called Diaspora Afrique, Diaspora Afrique, African Diaspora. And they have been, um, what do I want to say, they have been working from a diaspora point of view, from the point of view that if people are suffering worldwide, it is my job as a human to take that on, to put it on my back, and do something about it. What is my talent? My talent is speech. My talent is rhymes. So I will use my God-given talent to make this better. And they organized something. You asked about how do we go from panel to street, basically. They organized a panel last, last year where they had activists from and survivors of Katrina. Um, survivors of the French fires last year. I don't know how many people heard about this, and I, I think we're going to be talking about immigration on this panel. I'm not sure. If not, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, but um, uh, they had this, uh, they had this org event where they commemorated the 48 people, 48 Africans, okay, awaiting, <laughs> awaiting legalization papers in Roach motels in France. Um, which are just on the flip side. I don't know how many people have been to Paris in here. They're just on the flip side of basically the Saks Fifth Avenue, the Fifth Avenue of, of New York in France, of, of, of the best place to shop in France. You go just a block over, and you can find Roach Motels where Africans are awaiting legalization papers and are supposed to wait there quietly for over three years in roach-infested motels that were so poorly wired that they went up in flames in three different locations in the city, okay? So they took, this, they took this mantle. They said, okay, people are burning to death awaiting citizenship in a place that proclaims liberty, equality, and brotherhood. And they said, we're going to organize with other, with other people who have survived, with other black people who have survived such tragedies. We're going to get together with Katrina. And, and we were talking a little bit about... Um, the older generation and the younger generation and, and what matters. And it's, I'm very honored to be here at Princeton and on this panel at this particular moment, uh, this particular historical moment, when we're trying to figure out how we can connect the academy, how we can connect what we do here with what's on the ground. Um, and I want to say that, that in, terms of, of, in terms of making those connections, the way we do it is we ask, what's going on on the ground? Uh, I'm an anthropologist by training. I, that means that my work is on the ground. That means that in order to figure out what's going on in France, in order to figure out what's going on in New Orleans with Katrina, you have to go down there. We ask. We, we let the people tell us what we should be studying. We allow the people to enter into conversation with us. Let, let, me, let me follow up. Please. Because I still don't feel like. You're still not feeling me. I, I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't feel that the answer answered my question. Okay. And I think everything you said was substantive and pertinent, so I don't want to discount that. My question, however, is that what we've seen be successful within hip-hop politics and activism is campaign-based organizing. And so we have campaigns. And when the campaign is over, everybody goes home and does what they were doing before. I just um, emceed the Save Darfur rally in Central Park. There were over 30,000 people there, about 100 African-Americans, maybe, maybe. So there is a total disconnect in the understanding. I think what, what Carly was talking about was these youngins don't even get the information and thus don't know what to care about. So globalization economically makes more sense to me than Pan-Africanism. Um, and so I can understand it from a commercial standpoint, however, can't stand, understand it from a movement standpoint. Bakar, you talked about these older organizations, the NAACP, the Urban Leagues. These are the institutions that, that currently exist. How does hip-hop move from campaign-based organizations to hip-hop-owned and controlled institutions when many of the people within hip-hop don't know institution building? Can I cut in, though, before you, know. you, before you do that? Yeah, um, <laughs> Uh, just, to, just to pick up the pan-Africanism um, term again, um, in terms of in terms of it being pan-Africanism, whether whether and I use the word diaspora um, and global suffering, whether we realize it or whether we buy it here or not, um, Rosa brought up the idea that uh, oh MTV is supposed to represent hip hop. Well, MTV has embraced the notion of Pan Africanism. MTV launched MTV Africa last year, and that was a very slick, intentional move to get a foothold in the African market of hip hop. Um, so, in terms of in terms of how do we move from how do we how do we develop a political plan? I think that. I think that the, the content has to be substantive. You used the word substantive a second ago. Um, and that's what's going on. That is what's going on in terms of the political organization in France, which is also a democracy. Um, is that if, if it gets, if, if we can get more people out to vote, again, this is about social responsibility. Now I'm just launching again into my own personal opinion. Um, but if we can get people out to vote, by making our rhymes more substantive, by making our practices more substantive, why not do that? Why not respond to a particular political, social, economic, racial, insert adjective here, need by a certain population and, re and respond to that? I think there's a, look, straight up, for me, the problem with hip-hop is that race has been deconstructed. Everybody wants that hip-hop is for everybody. White kids like hip-hop. We've had me and Bacart, that's my boy to the death, but I disagree with some things. Look, hip-hop comes out of the struggle of African-American and Puerto Rican youth from the South Bronx, 1972. All right, I lived in the South Bronx, 1972 to 1982. All right, hip-hop saved my life. Hip-hop saved a lot of people's lives. What happened in the mid-90s when hip-hop began the whole, you know, people say they blame it on gangster rap. And the only reason they started to call it gangster rap because they were actually talking about being gangster against the police in South Central. 
Okay, back then. That's why they were gangsters. They were talking about killing the police, ICE-T, NWA. If it wasn't for the work of Congresswoman Maxine Waters and kind of that merging of um, West um, Coast hip-hop, we wouldn't have known the Iraq-Contra scandal that basically flooded drugs into South Central L.A. You know what I'm saying? So right there, that's a historical thing we can never forget that went down within hip-hop and someone who was in elected office that had the power to blow it out the water. I remember watching you at those hearings in college. I was like, if that's what a politician looks like, I'm down with that. So, you know, the history is there. We have to recall it. As a black Puerto Rican, okay, as Puerto Ricans, okay, I know people like the word Hispanic, Latinos, telling my brothers and sisters, look, I'm Puerto Rican, I have American citizenship because I am a colony of the United States of America. Fine. My other Latino brothers and sisters don't. That gives me a little different kind of, um, obviously, connection with particularly African Americans who are also citizens but suffer second-class citizenship. And in saying that, that gives me more of an international framework. What the sister is saying, basically, anywhere you go outside of the United States, hip-hop is the voice of the voiceless. Okay, in Venezuela, hip-hop is about Hugo. In, in Cuba, Hip-hop is about African people. It's about political prisoners. And to say that we don't have an institutionalized, that yes, we don't maybe have a building called hip-hop, but I'm gonna tell you, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, my organization, we have institutionalized Black August. Now, Black August comes out of the tradition of the San Quentin prison system. George Jackson. Okay, we in Malcolm X grassroots movement as hip hoppers in the early 90s were like, wait, we got people who are locked up in jail who fought for us to be free. There are political prisoners now from the Black Panthers. We can quote Mumia to the people you don't know like Jalil Muntiken who sits in Auburn 35 years because at the age of 18, he was a Panther. Been sitting in jail 36 years. Every day Jalil communicates with hip hoppers all over the world. A lot of us who use hip-hop as a mode of organizing have had very close relationship with political prisoners and have supported. And in fact, it has been hip-hop and artists like Talib, very few, that openly support Asada Shakur. I don't see most of these elected officials will never even mention Asada Shakur, especially not here in Jersey, right? So well, all let, that let being, me just, uh, if no, I may tell you that, why they don't. Yeah, it's scary. I mentioned Asada Secure, had it on my website, right. and of course the retired police and everybody else took me on. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I come from a community with a base that, you know, will vote, will, the, those that vote uh, will vote, but for most elected officials, when the organized police community uh, come after you, yeah. uh, they can't raise enough money or uh, develop the message in a way to fight them off. But here's what I want to I want to tell you: whether it's Asada Secure or Fidel or anybody else that you're trying to help uh, create a platform to have a voice to talk about who they are and what they do and what we're doing to them and why it's so important. When Hugo was up at the um, uh, UN mm -hmm. a few weeks ago and he called the president a devil. Mm -hmm. um, 
What you saw was, you know, politicians that basically rolled out and said, you know, how could you say such a terrible thing? It's not a right thing to say, et cetera, et cetera. And I know a lot of people in the hip-hop community were upset with that and say, well, you know, why, 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 do, why do those politicians do that? But on the other hand, I didn't see a group of people from the hip-hop activist community have a, have a, a press conference or put together a rally and said, let me interpret we did. what he was saying. Three days after with Councilman Charles Barron, there were over 80 hip-hop people. We don't get the mainstream media. And, and unless we have the connection, like, you know, now what we're doing basically after 10 years is connecting kind of like as Bakari saying the activists and I just want to finish on the Black August thing because I say it's an institution because we're going on our 10th year right and in those 10 <laughs> years not only have we raised over $95,000 and this is black money and when I mean black money this means no tobacco money no no corporations, no Rockefeller Four founders. This is people, $5 in the hood, out the hood, in the prisons. $95,000 we raised in 10 years. All that money goes to the families because people forget that these political prisoners have family members that can't even function in society because their dad or moms is locked up or in exile. And lastly, we've exposed over 45,000 people internationally and in the United States to artists, to the point when cats went to Venezuela last year, there are now mad graffiti mural walls in Venezuela, South Africa, and Cuba talking about all the United States political prisoners along in Ireland, along with the Irish Republican. So I think, uh, Army, so I think what I'm trying to say is it might not be a building, but for sure I can say for that 10 years, there has been this kind of, um, I think, consciousness raising. And I think what we're now trying to do is say, how can we all bring it together? Because you're right, Doc, um, Congressman Waters, none of us really were out for DeFore, and none of us were out for not in our name. And that more has to do, and that's another discussion, with who's running those organizations. And most of those organizations are run by people that don't look like us, that don't come from the hood, that don't have the same political kind of ideology, but lastly, that don't take into account in New York City in particular, if you're gonna have a rally and decide you're gonna bum rush and get arrested, you as a black person getting arrested in New York at a rally is very different than you as an anarchist white person who in two hours gets bailed out and you as a black man spends three. So that in New York particular after 911 many African-American and Latinos who did a lot of civil disobedience have backed off because the treatment has just been at a whole different level. But that doesn't mean we don't yeah, work. No, and, and let, it, let me, let me okay. real quick, because I want us to be able to go to the audience, and, and, and I don't want to shut this down, but for, for those that have the mics, if we can begin to prepare to take questions from the audience members. Okay. Uh, Congresswoman Waters, I want you to go ahead and please finish your, your thought. But Rosa, if I can interject, I think that... I'm done. No, no, it's okay. I think that what, what Bakari talked about earlier, having worked with the NAACP, when they do civil disobedience, they're prepared to bail out their folks within an hour. We're not. How do we institutionalize the processes of what we do beyond the great events that we do, beyond the great programs that we do, so that it is holistic institutionalization. Sometimes we're so anti-institution that we don't want to create institution. 
And so, again, I apologize for inserting my opinion as the moderator. Um, but I think that that, that is the, the, the higher level question that we have to get to. Dr. Well, just, just quickly so that we can get to the audience. I really don't think the NAACP or SCLC or even Rainbow Push can create your organization. It, 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 it just can't be done. Not because people don't want the involvement, but it's because um, there is not the understanding or the appreciation about the way things are done or how to make the appeal. And so that has to come from that community. I don't, I don't want to see you wait to be invited to the rally. I want you to create your own rally. I want you to um, have a rally about whatever, whether it is Katrina or Tafura or uh, the war in Iraq, what have you, because when politicians see power and numbers, they gravitate toward it. And if, in fact, uh, the politicians that you alluded to are speaking to somebody with that centrist message that you describe, it's because that's where the votes are. And see, that's, I think that's the main problem I have with politics. It's like when, were t when you were given the reason why, you know, politicians won't stand up and say how they feel about Assad or, or whatever, any type of politically dangerous situation, to me, that's the automatic disconnect. At that moment, I cannot trust you anymore. When Charles Rangel got up, it was like, I can't believe. It's like, come on, Charles, you live in Harlem. You can you understand why he would say George Bush is the devil? Come on, you, 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 you bullshitting me. When that's, Charles and that's what it feels like. When he's the reason that black people cannot live in Harlem anymore. It's Charles Rangel with a lot of development that literally you go to Harlem and in about 10 years, ain't no be no black or Latinos in Harlem. And then on top of it, you bring Clinton into 125th and then you end up dissing Hugo Chavez, a black Venezuelan who has provided how much oil to poor people in the South Bronx, Harlem, and in Boston. And one more, and one more thing. I, I think the important thing is really talking about how we could go on forever about different things. And you know what? I don't like the fact that you know I might want to vote for Hillary Clinton, but she supports the war in Iraq. So it's like, okay, I can't trust her either. You know what I'm saying? So there's so many things that are involved. That, but I do think that the, especially with people in college, we have a responsibility to create solutions and bring it together, you know, because that's, that's it. These discussions, a lot of times people forget it, these academic discussions, that the people we're talking about don't have the benefit of a college education, don't have people who can give them this information. They're just trying to eat, trying to live, trying to struggle, just survive every day. for what? Who? What? I'm trying to get food for tomorrow, you know what I'm saying? That's what a lot of people are going through. Well, see, that's one of the reasons why we I can, think it's not either or. Doc, no, no, I'm no, sorry, no, Dr. West. No. Oh! Hey! Wait a minute! Oh, he only spoke one time. If, if you all would allow me one moment before you go, Dr. West. There's a hip-hop rally right now. I know, they're coming for me. We're going to start as soon as Dr. West, because what will happen is he'll say something and then somebody's going to chime in. Dr. West is going to have the last comment on this remark. Then we'll go to a question in the balcony first. Please direct your question to one member of the panel. And panelists understand that we have just about half an hour left. So if you can keep your remarks as brief as possible so we can go. Please, Dr. West, without further ado. <laughs> no, but Cousin Jeff, you know I follow your guide and counsel now. You Thank know you, that, sir. though, don't you? As I do you. Absolutely. But I appreciate you allowing me to speak, too, though. 
<laughs> but it's two things for me. I mean, one is, is that it's never either or. It's not a question of electoral politics or social movements. There's a variety of different forms of activism. Sometimes it does and must spill over into the ballot box. Other times, we have to be honest. This is what I meant before in terms of just being honest, truthful, and courageous and saying, well, there are going to be times in which the American political system itself looks like a system of legalized bribery and normalized corruption. You have to just say that and be honest and then say, but we still have to find some space within it. We have to find progressives like, like Congressman Waters, Sister Maxine, within it. But she knows the levels of challenge corruption better than we do. And yet she still knows when you're up against a wall, you have to look for all kinds of weaponry to do it. Part of the problem we have here is a paradox. It goes back to Louis Armstrong, the jazz coming out of Storyville, coming out the red light district of St. Louis. It comes out of the blues, Jim Crow gut bucket Delta, Mississippi. American mainstream is obsessed with black creative genius, be it music, walk, style, but at the same time puts a low priority on the black social misery, mm -hmm. which is the very context out of which that creativity flows. So hip-hop hip itself, hip-hop itself is just... I mean, hip-hop emerges out of the American Ice Age. It's Reaganism. It's, it's obsession with material toys. It's being indifferent to the suffering of the most vulnerable among us. And it's precisely among that most vulnerable among us that this genius emerges out of the Bronx with African Bombada and Cool Herc and the whole stuff. You all know the history. But what happens? Mainstream America all of a sudden says, my God, this genius is undeniable. I've got to get in. I, I, I want to get in on it. But at the same time, you got political priorities in which the disgraceful school system still in place, dilapidated housing still in place, unavailable child, child care, health care still in care, not enough jobs of living wage still in place. So we, we're still wrestling with this paradox. And it seems to me that we need this division of labor. I appreciate what, what Brother Talib said about where he appreciates you doing your job and he being him, his job. So he's being Shakespearean. He said, I'm going to be true to myself. I want you to be true to yourself. We're going to overlap at times. Other times, we're going to have tension, not in a non-loving way, but we're going to disagree. Well, see, that to me is maturity because the end and aim is still how do we get the country to make a priority on the suffering of poor people and working people? That's a fundamental challenge, and it's a very dangerous thing. I see Brother Taylor sitting back there from Princeton Theological Seminary who's been leading the struggle for Mumia Abu-Jamal for 15 years. 15 years, another political prisoner people don't like to talk about. Why? Because he was willing to do some things that landed him in that cell. Now, there's not a whole lot of folk who are willing to do that. This is what I meant by how to become more courageous and compassionate. Most folk are scared. 50 Cent is talented, but he's scared. And the reason why he's scared is he got agents who tell him your career is predicated on doing certain kind of things. Tiger Wood is scared, even though he's the best golfer in the history of the game. Yeah. But I mean, just go right down to, now, I don't mind scared folk. I grew up with scared Negroes. <laughs> I try to help them along. You try to push them along and do, be the best that they can be. There'll be moments in which they surprise themselves and become courageous. That was Kanye's moment. That's exactly, because he was shaking, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. He came for it, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry yeah. to go on so long. Our first question right here. In the balcony. Jeff. 
uh, to Dr. West and also maybe the moderator. We talked about different organizations and you know the individual artists, but let's focus on mainstream media. BET, MTV, are they doing their part, their legal responsibility as a media channel to operate in the public's interest? No. West. Or <laughs> no, it's a good question. I mean, I think one reason why I'm so excited about my dear brother Tavis smiling, not just in public TV, but also with the Covenant movement, because it's very clear he's not scared. He's willing to speak his mind. He has an interview with Brother Hugo Chavez. Yes. We were down there with Hugo in January for a whole week together, reflecting on the issue. Why? Because he has the same kind of maturity that was manifest in the conversation that says, this is my job, this is what I do as one in the mainstream media. You know it's going to be very different. You all know Sister Amy Goodman? Well, yeah, that's Very progressive sister. She's not mainstream. She plays a very important role in Democracy Now! is called. Yeah, I'm on Pacifica Radio, and I'm, I'm, I'm on Pacifica right on. on WBAI 99.5. I have a show Absolutely. on Thursdays. It's called Where We Live, and it was created around the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal 25 years mm. ago. And I Beautiful. was brought Beautiful. in by the older folks there who said, this radio's getting stale. We need some blood. I've been there five years. But in terms of mainstream media... You really have to understand consolidation. You got to understand, obviously, I'm sure you do MTV, BET, owned by Viacom, Summer Redstone. You really got to end up knowing, basically, as Chuck D says, the 10 white men over 50 that are running hip hop and media, beginning with Jimmy Iovine to Lyle Cohen. And you need to know, like, people like Jimmy Iovine, who managed 50 Cent, have publicly said that he will not allow his daughters to listen to hip hop music, but he'll put it out there for people to consume it. I'm part of an organization called Reach Hip Hop, and we began after Hot 97 aired the Tsunami song, where they thought it was funny to make fun. Do you remember people remember the Tsunami song? Yeah. And then when Star recently said, you know, I want to reward out so we can find out where DJ Envy's six-year-old daughter goes to school and what we should do to her. We've been going up against it, and we love Reach Hip Hop, and anybody could join, but particularly the organization is really amazing because it's all, women are in the leadership, and the brothers in the leadership have stated that they will not be part of the leadership. And what it has done is it's allowed us, particularly as women of color, to grow, but it also, because we realize that the people in charge of MTV, Christina Norman, African-American woman. Kim Osorio, Source Magazine. Mimi Valdez. What we began to realize is what happened is all the people in that programmatic power were women of color who were okaying, like recently the Snoop Doggy Dog cartoon or the VH1 Flavor of Love where both images showed African-American women in a cartoon and in real life defecating. Or MTV Uncut, which was produced by a woman. Right, or Kathy Hughes who runs Radio 1 who did not allow any Dead Prez or Immortal Technique or Boots Riley song to be played on Radio 1 for like two years. And even Talib, one of Talib's song ended up on this list of 200 songs that Clear Channel refused to play after 911 because it had the word peace or whatever in it. 
So there's a lot of groups working against what we call mainstream media. But what we really need is particularly young people of color to step up and begin to write, to blog, to MySpace, to editorialize, to write letters to the editor. We don't get involved. What I've seen from the white progressive movement is a lesson, and we have to lastly understand that we as black people started alternative media. It started with the North Star paper by Frederick Douglass and it continued with Ida B. Wells Barnett and her anti-lynching campaign and newsletters and it continued with Richie Perez who developed and helped the Panthers develop their paper along with the Young Lords. We started alternative media because we were never part of mainstream. So why are we trying to get up in it again? We challenge it, we hold it accountable, but we own our own. We go to the FCC meetings, but as Maxine, Congressman yes. Waters said, we don't go to testify. We go to shake it up and be like, if y'all don't change it up, we're going to have to start shutting it down. And we've let been me, successful. Let me interject. I want to make sure we get as many questions in yeah, as no, we can. Thank you, Rosa. In, in the audience, in the balcony, please. Um, yes, yeah, so this question is mainly for Ms. Clemente. Um, you spoke a lot of... <laughs> all right, well, all right, um, well, I guess it sort of relates to what you were talking about, but more Professor West. Um, just there's a lot of talk about like the struggle and the roots of hip hop with predominantly the black and uh, Puerto Rican culture in New York. But can't hip hop, since it's so mainstream, kind of bridge the gap between all cultures? Because since it um, attracts a wide variety of people, it would be instrumental in, let's say, uh, moving from just grassroots activism to helping out broader education because without proper um, primary and secondary school education, you can't really have an um, you know, informed uh, electorate. So what do you think about that? Um, I mean, of course, hip hop is art at its heart. It's not, you know, of course, hip hop comes from black people and Latino people and poor people, oppressed people. Um, and art made by that group of people is made not for art's sake, but to really document and really be practical in people's lives. Like Rosa said, she f was living in the South Bronx and hip hop saved her life. It's not like she listened to a song and just, that was it. It wasn't art for art's sake. So it's something that appeals to all groups of people all over the world because it speaks directly in the language that the kids are still using. Um, a lot of music, by the time an R&B song is popular, the language and the sentiment of it kind of seems corny because it's not speaking in the, in the lexicon what kids are still speaking. And that's why for R&B to be relevant lately, you have to have a rapper on it or a hip-hop producer to do the beat. Um, because of that, hip-hop by nature is inclusive of, of everybody. But if we lose focus of where it, it comes from, then you can't understand its power, and then the discussion becomes misleading. The discussion becomes more about it being for the sake of art and oh we real hip hop we live and die for hip hop and ignoring the conditions that hip hop come from a less eloquent way of saying that is don't confuse R-O-O-T-S with R-O-U-T-E-S you see the roots are historic and the roots are thoroughly African but it goes from the roots like a springboard to all the world that's the universality of it that's the humanity of it. So anybody can revel in the product that come out of these particular historical circumstances. A lot of people want to deny one, deny the other. No, the two go hand in hand. That's why the world loves jazz. Always will, as long as human beings are around. They're going to love hip-hop, too. At least Sorry. certain versions of hip-hop. Thank you, Dr. West. Our, ne our next question in the back. Uh, my question is pretty simple. Um, it's going to be out to Dr. West because, you know, we know you best on this campus. 
Because there's this sentiment of a system that's broken, Talib, you mentioned it, us picking a system that's essentially broken. And there's a lot of what's brought to us on this campus is a, is a question of education, of paideia, of growth, of maturation, and learning. And the thing is, is if we're set to pick from a system that's broken, that there's got to be some way to make the message less about the fight and more about the maturation and understanding. I understand that, you know, Ms. Clemente, that we... Uh, please, please, brother, ask the question for me. How, what kind of education do you think a campus like Princeton needs? How do we need to change? This isn't a group that's going to evolve. How do you think we need to change? What do you think needs to come? I think you could begin by taking uh, Professor Eddie Gloss' courses. <laughs> what I mean by this, you get, you get critical critical engagement. Paideia is about this formation of attention to something serious. It's about cultivation of a self to deal with reality, memory, and mortality. And it's about maturation of a soul, which means dealing, looking deep the way Brother Talib talked about inside of yourself and having the courage to find your voice, whatever it is. Nobody has the same voice. You see, That's what you call serious teaching. He's not the only professor like that. There's others too, but I'm just using him as paradigmatic, right? Now, what does that mean, though? It means that recognizing that the system's always been broken. It was broken when it started. Yeah, America. It was broken when it started. And indigenous peoples, it will never be set back in such a way that it redeems the suffering of indigenous peoples. Never. It will never be set back in a way that redeems the suffering of black slaves and Jim Crow black people and women and so forth. The question is, in a democracy, we're all here for a short amount of time. We're going to be dead soon. Nobody gets out of space and time alive. In the short time that we hear, how do we attempt to expand the democratic possibilities for the empowerment of everyday people? It's going to be broken 50 years from now if it's around, if it's not authoritarian. Now, with these new acts, it's crypto fascist. It, it really is. It's crypto fascist because some of us are already enemies of the state. You see, so you just show up in jail and send me some food. On the bush, you see what I mean? That's a possibility. That's a real possibility. Well, no, it's not a possibility. I think Congresswoman Waters can tell us that this torture bill that has been passed has provisions for United States citizens. I mean, it's like well, it's sick that right. can be picked up. And people should know that Jose Padilla, an American citizen that's Puerto Rican, has been in jail for almost five years on no charges. I don't know how you can talk about education and not understand the danger to the democracy that is being presented at this time while you're in this institution. What they're talking about with the enemy combatants and the loss of habeas corpus, how can you know the Constitution? How can you talk about democracy and be quiet while this is going on? Education is irrelevant if you are dealing with this. So I don't know how and what you should be doing at Princeton, but if you're satisfied and you think you're getting an education and you are uninvolved as you watch the democracy crumble before your very eyes, then you're wrong. And you should force this institution and whatever you're doing in life to deal with what's going on now that's changing the world and creating the kind of hatred that will not allow you to be an international person because people don't want to see you in other countries understanding you as an occupier and an abuser and someone who is absolutely undermining all of that which you stand for. I mean, what is education if you aren't dealing with that? Thank you, Congressman. 
Our next question. Um, how y'all doing? <laughs> uh, this is for uh, Mr. Kwale. And uh, some of the um, elements of my question have been touched on already. But um, in my opinion, mainstream hip-hop like, often misrepresents what real hip-hop is. And I want to ask Mr. Kwale, um, how you feel when people get the wrong impression about hip-hop, like when you perceive hip-hop as just what you hear on the radio and objectifying women, et cetera, and all that. Also, um, I want to ask... Let, let, let's, let's stop there with one question uh, so we can get to another question. Thank you so much. I mean, I do think that there is a definite difference when people in the mainstream media talk about hip-hop and what hip-hop is not doing, what hip-hop is doing, they're talking about strictly the top 10 on 106 and Park or strictly the top 10 records you hear on the radio. And there's tons of artists from Gene Gray to Immortal Technique that are doing it. The way I've looked at hip-hop, though, I don't, it's very easy and seductive to fall victim to that and say, well, you know, well, then I'm not listening to Ludacris. Well, I'm not listening to Cameron and Jay-Z and all these other people. And, and like I was saying before, it's important for me as an artist to connect the dots instead of not connecting them and to reach out to these artists. If you listen to my mixtapes or even my radio show, I got a radio show on XM. My show's on Raw. I could have put my show on The Rhyme or The City where you hear more conscious hip-hop. But I put my show on Raw because I feel like that's the audience that needs to hear an artist like Talib Kweli. Um... I play these artists' records. I play Lil Wayne's records and T.I.'s records, but I also play Mad Lib records and Jay Dilla records and Gene Gray records. And, and to me, it's all the same. What I find is that artists who make gangster rap or consider mainstream in these academic settings and in the activist settings were like, well, we don't mess with you and we can't appreciate what you're saying and this and that. So they're like, cool, I'm going to make music for people who appreciate what I'm saying. But if these organizations would reach out um, to these artists and see them f as more than one dimensional like is Jay-Z a gangster rapper well yeah but is that all he is nah am I a conscious rapper yeah is that all I am nah David Banner says some of the worst things about women I've ever heard on records you know what I'm saying but when Katrina happened he called my phone blew my phone up like come to my come to Mississippi you know what I'm saying like he comes to the Black Orchestra. so none of these artists are one dimensional and if we look at them for what they are as artists and respect them for pe as being people then we have a better chance of really harnessing their power you know what I'm saying 50 Cent for as decadent as he is when they asked him who he wanted to interview when he was on the cover of Double XL for the anniversary he said I want inter to interview Talib Kweli and they interviewed me and that was a great you know, it was a great situation because I was able to ask him. He was talking to me about wanting to inject more consciousness in his music. I was talking to him about I don't know how to write hooks. You know what I'm saying? So, you know what I'm saying? So it was a good discourse. And I think we, we all need to look at it like that. Thank you. Our next question. Uh, hi. I uh, just want to say thank you for having us here. Uh, my question kind of similar to his. You um, kind of touched on it, but when artists like Cameron and stuff put out mainstream singles like Suck It or Not, and that's being played all day on the radio, you can hear that at 10, 11, 12 o'clock, and like your, your you know, quality, your record's not even getting played at all. Like, how do you feel as an artist when, you know, your stuff is very socially conscious, but his isn't, and like, there's no real substance to it. But my stuff is getting played. I don't depend, like Rosa was saying, I don't depend on the mainstream media to validate me. Right. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I make my own videos, and I do 250 shows a year. My record is coming out. I have my own label, Blacksmith and Warner Brothers. Cameron's record is on Koch. You're going to hear that sucker or not 3,000 times on the radio, but I'm going to sell more records of Cameron. You know what I'm saying? Because of how I'm handling my business. I think that a record like sucker or not, I love that record. I do. If I'm in a strip club and that record comes on, it's perfect. Perfect. You know what I'm saying? But for real. 
But for real, if I'm in the car with my kids at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I hear it on Hot 97, it's a problem. Do I get mad at Cameron, the artist, for making a record for strippers? Or do I get mad at the program director for playing in the, af in the afternoon? And do I... And do I take, well, I, no, I don't agree that I get mad at both because I feel like I, there are records I want to hear when I'm in the strip club that sound good. And that, as an adult, I have a right to hear that record. No, and, I feel you, you know, on but, that, but, but I do know, feel like the woman we, thing is, is completely being glossed. And I'm even noticing that no women are asking questions. And oh, what, what's beginning to be, okay, you know, and I want to kind of go back and forth on this because, see, to me, a Cameron at his age, I'm going to give him a year or two. But a 50? No, um, uh, ludicrous. Don't come out in red, black, and green, and then make a song talking pimping all over the world and related to Africa. When we we know when we went to Africa, cats were coming up to us. What gang you in? The Biggie Tupac gang, because they were on. And now you go to Ghana, and cats usually are meeting hip hop artists. What up, nigga? How you doing? So you know. So let me just on the woman thing. Because what we can clearly see now with young girls, that these media images, these songs, the anorexia, the bulimia, all of that is beginning to affect women. They did a study where they studied 2,000 African-American and Latina girls, and they gave them a certain type of misogynistic music, hip-hop and pop and images, and then they studied 2,000 other girls. And the uh, 2,000 that were exposed were, you know, um, easily would have sex at an earlier age, um, would, uh, would just do more oral sex, because that's the one thing Thing that a lot of these young kids are beginning to learn is this aspect of oral sex and they're having oral sex at seven eight nine years old and you know in Brooklyn where we're from has the highest HIV infected young people between 14 and 21 so my whole thing with the again with the woman issue is I am not gonna listen to a song that a 31 year old black man has made or a daddy Yankee or all this nasty reggaeton that's out there and because they're saying it in Spanish and people don't understand it and like the beat. I'm not going to let myself be subjected to a reggaeton song coming from Puerto Rico saying that the only good position for a Puerto Rican woman is on her knees sucking someone's penis. And, and Rosa, and, and you... And in you saying that, I have daughters, you know, and I think we all are really going to have to deal with the ramifications in the next 10 to 15 years of the increasing, because it is increasing misogyny and sexism within the music. But what do we do about it? If, well, confront, if you see that, confront if, the artists. Well, I think, Quali, I think, ahead, I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, I think it's a mistake to confront the artists. If we get into that, we're becoming music Nazis, and we're doing the same thing that we're talking about the Constitution. The I'm Congress. Not talking about censorship. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. People hold on, hold on. have one, a personal choice. People have a personal choice not to support the content I'm of someone's music. Well, I'm talking. About, well, if, if you're saying that you have to check what the artists are making, then that's exactly what you're saying. No, I'm saying as an activist, I'm, I'm not about censorship. Put your music out there. No, because I would not support censorship. I'm, a radio, I'm about balance. Under any circumstance. But as an artist, I, I as an activist, I also have a right. 
if I want to, to go up to MTV and Snoop Dogg and all of them and protest. If you continue to use the music, then what I need to do as a woman who we as women buy the most records and the most hip-hop related material is maybe start a boycott and saying okay. any artist yeah, that is up. not down that's with okay. this. And I'm bringing that up because that's something that's coming to fruition now with a lot of women's groups because even within the hip-hop convention, something that I'm very proud I founded, I myself and other women have left the convention. And the convention is not full of artists. The convention is full of, quote, revolutionary activist brothers who have completely pushed all the women out for various reasons. But for the most part, because men think that feminism and women's issues have to be talked to from a, a, a woman has to bring it up. Men have to begin to say that we as men find this unacceptable because this is not what we're all about as men either. Let me real quick. One more thing real quick. Um, I'm going to say one more thing before I leave. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on this panel in front of you, you all, you students, and especially with my company. It's just wonderful company. I feel like very humbled to be in the president, presence of these, these people, you know, I was selling his book 10 years ago. We were arguing on panels 10 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just, you know, I was watching her on TV 10 years ago. You know, it's real good. But I just want to say, like, and that's the last thing you said, Rosa, is what I completely agree with. Her job as an activist is to point out the holes and be like, this artist is a travesty, and what, what he's saying is not acceptable in our community. And us as community people, we have to stand up and say, as a community, we're not going to stand for that. We're not going to have you call our young women bitches and hoes. We have young girls. I have a daughter. We have, we have children who look up to this. Now, me as an artist... My job is to, to, to create and be artistic. So I'm not going to say to another artist, you need to rap like how I think you should rap. What I'm going to do is I'm going to rap, I'm going to make songs like Black Girl Pain and make songs like Never Been In Love and make the songs that, I, that, that she's talking about and not say another artist shouldn't do it. I'm going to go ahead and do it and be dope and be as dope and ill as fresh as I can be, you know what I'm saying? Because that kills all the discussion. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going I'm to try to lead by example. And hopefully what will happen is I'll do my songs and one of them artists will come up to me and be like, wow, I never even thought that you could do that. Just like when you watch Snoop Dogg, watch Snoop Dogg's Life of Rhymes of Snoop Dogg is on MTV. I'm about to go work for Viacom. That's why I would break out. But when you watch... <laughs> Um, Snoop Dogg's Life of Rhymes on MTV, he's talking about Murder Was a Case. He wrote that record and how it came true because he put the word Murder Was a Case in the record and he starts crying and shedding a tear when he's making the record. Then he goes on to talk about, you know, I'm an, I'm an adult now, I'm older, I have children, I have family. I was real hard on women early in my career. I made a lot of records degrading women. And then I said, you know, I need to make records where I celebrate women. And he's not quite there yet, you know what I'm saying? Because he didn't did the records he did with Pharrell. You know what I'm saying? Which is great, great party records. They don't completely celebrate women, but they're a lot better than, you know, the earlier records. So I'm always for uh, optimists and, and hopefully artists can grow up and get better. Imagine what Biggie would have sound like if he was still alive. Imagine what Tupac would sound like. And that's all I want to say. Thank you. Y'all, please give a round of applause for Talib Kweli. <laughs> Brother Kweli has to go tape hip-hop honors um, and so we appreciate him coming in the midst of being in taping for hip-hop honors we're gonna have one more question for the balcony I think it's important however to put in con um, question or comment is actually um, to Congresswoman uh, Waters 
I'm a professor of political science, and so I hear you say, you know, people go where the votes are, and, you know, that the, the, the very first question was around Hurricane Katrina and asking whether or not there was a missed opportunity. But with all due respect, everything that's been said about what's going on politically, when I hear that, that sounds to me like fundamentally the fault of the Democratic Party and fundamentally the fault of the Democratic Party because it hasn't gone where the numbers are. Black people have been giving their votes to the Democratic Party since the middle of the century with a regularity that no other group has. And it's not true that you have to be organized first and then the elected officials come. The, the, the cultivation of the Christian right was done on purpose for people who were generally not voters, who saw voting as basically a, a dirty business that was against God. And so they were new voters. They were potential voters, and they went out and cultivated them. So when Katrina hits, and there are 100,000 African Americans dispersed, Nobody says there's a great Democratic voting diaspora out there. How can we go out there and cultivate? The Democratic Party was largely, I mean, okay, George Bush may not care about black people, but I want to know why the Democratic Party didn't care about black people enough to show up. Now, now I'm only picking on you because you're standing here as a representative of the party because I recognize that, in, that within the party you are the single most progressive, courageous voice within the party. But I want to know where is the political party that we have been supporting since 1940s have been supporting when we were on top of the roof. Why didn't the Democratic Party come for us? Well, let me just say this. Um, you're absolutely right. I don't speak for the Democratic Party. Uh, I really do speak for Maxine Waters, and I act on my beliefs uh, every day. Uh, I believe that blacks vote for the Democratic Party because they do understand that they are voting more in their best interest than if they were voting for a Republican Party. Much of what has been accomplished uh, that helps poor people and people of color in this country was done uh, on Democratic Party policies. Much of what's done, people take for granted. The big fight that we've had on Social Security. Social Security has helped to eliminate poverty in this country. And many African Americans benefit uh, from Social Security in ways that if we did not have Social Security, they'd be eating dog food. That's a Democratic Party policy. We will not allow it to be privatized, no matter what anybody says. The fight has been strong, it has been consistent, and we push them back on that. A lot of people are ashamed of welfare. And the fact of the matter is, there are children who are born into poor families through no fault of their own. They've got to eat, they've got to have a place to live, and the Democratic Party, through the Roosevelt policies, et cetera, helped to develop a safety net for those kids. I don't mind the reform and talking about some of the reform. It has basically been a political issue rather than an issue that really talks about how you make people independent. Whether you're talking about minimum wage, the battle that we just had on the floor with the Republicans. $5.15 an hour minimum wage for people who are trying to take care of families. The Republicans said no. And let me tell you what they did. 
They said, we want to continue to give tax breaks to the richest people in America, the richest 1% in America that's benefited from the tax cuts of this administration. And they made a joke out of our fight to increase the minimum wage for the poorest and most vulnerable people in this society. You know what they did? They said, ha ha, we will attach to it that which is known as the death tax, the inheritance tax. And if you will allow the richest people in America to hold on to all their money, pass it on the way that they want to, not be involved in helping to provide the dollars that are necessary to run this country, then we'll give you a dollar or so. So it is not because black people are stupid. It's because we know that not only will George Bush and the Reagans continue to give the tax breaks to the wealthiest people in the world. It is their corporations, Halliburton in Katrina, in uh, New, New Orleans, Halliburton <laughs> in Iraq, who are making money on no-bid contracts. And it is the company of Dick Cheney, who was the CEO, who has been in office protecting Halliburton to be able to rip us off in Iraq where they are providing services and cheating us and in Katrina, after Katrina, with the no-bid contracts. So black people aren't stupid. And if, in fact, if, in fact, the argument that some Republicans make, we ought to be in both places. All right, you go over there, but if you're sitting over there and you are not saying anything, you're not opposing these policies, what good is it for you to be over there? As a matter of fact, I will be in Ohio in a few days trying to stop Ken Blackwell, a black Republican, because you know what he did to the voting system there? Not only did he reduce the number of polling places so that black people had to stand in line and get discouraged. We had come up with some repair in the voting system that he undermined in Ohio in ways that had never been done before. So we're not stupid, we're and not, the get, Democratic Party never, holds us in good stead. I would never suggest that we're stupid. I was standing in Columbus. I saw those lines. I'm not suggesting that we That was done by Republicans. No, I understand. I'm not Florida suggesting was we should done vote by the Republican Party. What I want to know is where was the organized effort on the part of the Democratic Party to provide a consistent voice post-Katrina that would have said what happened to Katrina was about race, it was about class, it was about national security, it was about environmental policy, and where is the Democrat who became the national voice to represent the people of the American South in a post-Katrina era that would have provided more votes to a party which is out of power. In my mind, the, the, their lack, the, the parties not doing that was about them not going to the voters. There, those were Democrats trapped on the top of those houses, and in fact, it's been in retreat. Yes. So, granted, Can I understand. Well, yeah. let, let me, real, real quick, because let this is, wait, 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 this, can, this, this. could be a panel by yeah. itself. Okay. This could be a panel by itself. Uh, I want to yes. give Bakari an opportunity to respond. That'll be the right. last statement that we make. We will then go to closing remarks. We are this already is, over okay. time. Good. I think that That's the good. question Thank that she's so raising gets to the crux of why we're here. Yeah. And, and this is what it is. Social justice, and the question that the brother asked about education, social justice has been taken off of the national agenda. Either the Demo both, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans are able to bring the question of social justice to government. So within our generation, within the hip-hop generation, voting for the lesser of two evils isn't enough. And so I think that's the question, the question of education. What type of society do we want to live in? 
we supposedly live in the in the the uh, the, the most advanced uh, economically, etc., country in the history of the universe. And, and education should be teaching us how do we make that society work for all of its people. Yes. And I think that that's what, that's what we're missing yes. in terms of the Democratic Party. I think that the Democratic Party is playing catch up with the Republican Party. And what has happened, most certainly in the last 30 years, is that uh, corporations are running the country. And so it's the, corpor it's the corporations that government is responding to, not the people. The question of an education at Princeton or anywhere else should be concerning itself with, can we create a society that has corporations that also has a government that works for the people? The social justice programs that you're talking about that the Democrats were able to bring into existence, those aren't things that came into existence in our lifetime, members of the hip-hop generation. But your so grandmama benefited from it. We benefited from them, but I think the, the, the relevance in terms of moving the country forward is not at our fingertips. And so I think that within the hip-hop generation, people are willing to entertain the Republicans because they can't see any sense of urgency right now in terms, in terms of what you're saying. I, I don't agree with it, okay? I don't agree with it, but I do think that we're in a, we're in a position where the, the voting remains critical and, and across race. And this is the importance of, you know, why I talked about why white kids love hip-hop, Rosa. And that is because I think that when we have a black agenda in this country, we've seen what the, what, what's going to happen. There's going to be a quick, swift movement to destroy those people in those movements. I think that hip-hop provides us with an opportunity to have a cross-racial movement that can begin to raise these questions of social justice within a generation of young people who's, who've lived their entire lives in, in post-segregation America. Quickly, if we can, thank you, Bakari. Okay. That's going to be our final statement. Thank you, Bakari. Can we give a round of applause for oh, Rosa that's, Clemente? That's our final statement? No. <laughs> Rosa Clemente. I got another one. Bakari Kitwana, Talib Kweli, Dr. Cornell West, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Maria McMath. Thank you. Before everyone leaves, please let's give another round of applause to the Hip Hop Arts and Life. And for those people that have helped make this possible, shout outs to Officer Dean of Undergraduate Students, JKG Group and Bob Gitlin, all those people on the back of the program. Thank you very much for making this happen. Bakari will have books available at the front table for those who are interested. <laughs>